Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. This next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded and a time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe, those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, my partner Ravinder is here in the studio with me and ready to be uncertain for an hour. So, Ravinder, say hello to everyone and tell them how they can chat live and submit questions to the show. Well, hello, everyone. Um, It's great to be here. And I'm always willing to be uncertain. I think I'm uncertain most of my life, actually. Uh, But I can always do with learning some more, and I look forward to doing that. Um, If you have any questions or you want to just add your comments to the show, then we do have a Provocative Enlightenment Radio Facebook page. So simply do a search for Provocative Enlightenment Radio, and you will find us. And... uh, You'll see the information there on today's guest and where we are chatting. So, yes, if there's anything that you want to add to the show, please come on in and add your comments. And then if there's any information that our guest shares with us today, any orals or anything, then that is where we will post it. So, yes, do go check out the Provocative Enlightenment Radio Facebook page. Okay, in this week's Spotlight, I want to focus on the attitudes of helplessness and hope. I'm a strong advocate of animal rights, so it often offends me when I hear of animal studies that inflict pain. That said, there are times when, despite the affront, I feel the information is entirely altogether too tutorial to ignore. The two studies that I'm about to share with you represent just that. Years ago, Martin Seligman demonstrated a condition referred to today as learned helplessness. What Seligman did was to place dogs in cages with floors that were wired to deliver electric shock. Some of the animals in his experiment were unable to escape the shock despite their efforts to run from it. In other words, the entire floor was wired in such a way that no matter where the dog fled to, there was no escape. Once the dog learned they could not escape the shock, they were placed in cages where only part of the floor was wired to deliver shock. However, dogs that had been conditioned to believe there was no escape failed to try. They simply laid down and dealt with the pain. When contrasted to animals that had not been conditioned to believe they were unable to escape the pain, there is a real lesson here. For dogs that had not been so conditioned fled the shock finding safe areas in the cage where the floor did not deliver shocks, even when they were moved to different cages. So think about that. What kind of thoughts have each of us been conditioned to that may predispose us to give up hope? I want you to contrast this to an experiment conducted by Kurt Richner. In the 50s, 
Richter conducted experiments with rats. Wild rats are known for their remarkable swimming ability. In this gruesome study, Richner placed the wild rats in jars of water and watched while they drowned in only minutes. He then placed the rats in the water and just before they would have drowned, removed them. He proceeded to dry the rats off and massage them before putting them back in the water. Wild rats treated this way could swim for days before giving up and eventually drowning. Given a little hope, the hope of a rescue, and instead of giving up in minutes, the rats could swim for days. Think about the difference between helplessness and hope now in light of these two studies. It's important to consider another factor when it comes to habits of thinking, hope versus helplessness or hopelessness, success versus failure, and the like. Your brain is hardwired in such a way that when you make a prediction and it comes true, there is a release of oxytocin in your system. Oxytocin is that feel-good chemical many refer to as the love chemical. In other words, you are rewarded for accurately predicting the outcome of events. So if you think you're going to fail at something, does this reward kick in? Well, the fact is, that's exactly what happens. This reward system is addictive. So every time you predict your own failure, you are rewarded. And this loop creates an addictive pattern. In other words, you can become literally addicted to feelings that are negative about yourself and the reward system strengthens this addictive loop. Now I spoke with Dr. Loretta Graziano Bruning about just this in an interview regarding her marvelous book, The Science of Positivity. And she made it very clear that our own expectation of failure absolutely creates a neurochemical reward pattern based on the release of oxytocin. This pattern, one might say, is a negative self-fulfilling prophecy realized, or at least the reward for that negative self-fulfilling prophecy. Think about that for a moment. The less you think of yourself and your abilities, and therefore the positive outcome of your efforts, your ambitions, your goals, the more you are rewarded by neurochemicals for failure. Now, the reward may give momentary pleasure, but is this what you really want? Somehow, I don't think so. Those are my thoughts anyway. What are yours, Ravinder? You know, I find the whole idea of being rewarded for failure just fascinating. Um, you know, it certainly explains why people just do the same things or why people can talk themselves down, talk themselves out of stuff. You know, what's the point of trying? I only fail anyway. And uh, yeah, I think there's a great deal to be learned from that and uh, definitely incentives to do something about it. But trying to find, you know, how to get out of that hole can be challenging. So the pessimist has its own, her, his own built-in reward system. Yeah. 
that itself ensures the fact that they're right about the world sucks and then you die. Yep, and then they just carry on And you'll just be a failure on the way (laughs) in. Okay. Every week, I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week, our show featured Professor William Ferriolo, and we discussed his book, A Life Worth Living, Meditations on God, Death, and Stoicism. Elizabeth wrote, his book really helped me to understand Stoic philosophy and live a better life. Mary wrote, I love your show and your selection of guests, so informative, thank you. All right, moving on, Mark wrote, I'm a physician and I've been using your products and love them. And Marcia wrote, I have been using your Intertalk products for several weeks now and I am blown away by the success I have had. My entire family is using them and they have all seen amazing results. Thank you for developing this technology. Well, thank you, Marcia. Thank you, all of you, for your letters. That's all the time we're going to take today. But we do love your feedback, so please keep it coming. You can opine by sending me an email at Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at EldonTaylor.com, or you can join me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor, or go to the Provocative Enlightenment Facebook page, leave your comments there on the show. We do sincerely appreciate your comments and suggestions. Now to today's show, Healing with Spiritual Practices, Proven Techniques for Disorders from Addictions and Anxiety to Cancer and Chronic Pain. With a special guest, Professor Thomas Plant. Professor Plant has been with us before, but for those of you who weren't able to catch that show, let me tell you a little about him. Thomas G. Plant, Ph.D., is a Jesuit professor of psychology and, by courtesy, religious studies at Santa Clara University. He directs the Applied Spirituality Institute there. He is also an adjunct clinical professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine. He has published 23 books, over 200 journal articles and book chapters, and maintains a private practice in Menlo Park, California. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor Thomas Plant. Thank you very much. It's great to be with you again, Elton, and I appreciate your invitation to be on your terrific show. I love your work. That's why you're back. You are today's spotlight, Professor. What are your thoughts on the importance of hope? And please address it, if you will, or unpack it in light of the role spirituality plays in generating hope? Well, you know, we certainly need hope um, uh, terribly. Uh, uh, The world seems to, at times, and times like now, seems to be going to hell in a handbasket. There's so much to be concerned about. Uh, The uh, pandemic that is going on right now, as well as, you know, economic inequality and political divisiveness and so forth, there's a lot of things to be very discouraged about. And so uh, we certainly need hope. And there's a terrific amount of research that speaks to the benefits of trying to be hopeful or look at the glass half full rather than half empty. And uh, certainly spirituality plays a big role in that. Um, All of the major uh, religious traditions and spirituality offer tools, if you will, uh, for one's toolbox 
that help to give them uh, solace, uh, hope, and a path forward that without being in Pollyanna denial, um, but can move people forward in a more productive, hopeful, and um, health-promoting way. And uh, that's what we try to un- underscore and emphasize. Okay, I, I want to get to your book, uh, Professor Plant, but first I have a few questions that are just generally about religion, uh, you and, and your process in putting the new book together. So to that end, if we may, first let's discuss religion. Religion tends to promote a form of private club. That's a major objection people have. That is, they're often exclusivistic, if we can use that word. In other words, they have the exclusive truth and all other religions are false. This is divisive at its core. So how does this attitude promote faith and or lead to living the, the claimed virtuous life? Great question. Uh, you know, first off, religion is remarkably complicated. First off, not only are there multiple religions, uh, but there are also multiple variations on the theme of each one. And so, as example, you know, in the uh, Catholic tradition, which is my tradition, uh, there's highly conservative and highly uh, or very liberal progressive. Uh, in the Jewish tradition, you have Orthodox Judaism, which is very different than Reformed Judaism. Uh, certainly in the Protestant tradition, you have uh, Southern Baptists that tend to be different than Northern Baptists, or you have utilitarian. Unitarians who are really quite different than the Methodists or the Presbyterians or and so forth. So first off, we have to understand that religion is remarkably complicated and there's a remarkable amount of diversity between traditions and within traditions. Uh, the second thing is, yes, uh, in some respects, it's a, it, religion can be a very exclusionary, like we have the truth and you don't, but it can also be remarkably welcoming and opening and embracing. And so I think religion often gets a bad rap uh, because we read in the newspapers and uh, about religion at its worst. Uh, we usually don't read about religion at its best. And, uh, but we have to understand that it's remarkably complicated with a remarkable amount of diversity. And I get that answer, but, and I, and I don't mean to, you know, uh, stay on it a little bit, but there, there, there's a bit of a conflict in my mind that I'm, I'm really interested in how you personally resolve. You, regardless of whatever religion a person uh, chooses, uh, with the exception perhaps of Buddhism, um, you, religion claims exclusivity. And in that process, they become very dividing and yet at the same time, they're arguing that, you know, it's they're very inclusive. And that seems to be um, you know, a self-contradictory position. How, how do you personally deal with that? Yeah, that's a great, wonderful question. Um, and I think for me, for example, I happen to be from the Roman Catholic tradition, and I teach at a Jesuit university, Santa Clara University is a it's a Jesuit school, and there's uh, uh, 27 Jesuit schools in the United States and about 150 worldwide. 
And um, uh, I also, so in addition to being engaged uh, personally as a Catholic and an engaged Catholic, I also happen to be married to a, 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 a woman for, uh, who's been uh, together for almost 40 years who happens to be Jewish from the Reformed Jewish tradition. And I, so I belong to both a Jewish synagogue and a Roman Catholic church. And it's kind of funny, we, we have a, a son, uh, our son, uh, Zach, who is about to turn 24. And uh, the first line in his college admission essay was, not many people can say that there were more Jesuit priests at my bar mitzvah than rabbis, which is true. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we had a, a whole row of Jesuit priests at his, uh, at his bar mitzvah. And, um, and so I would say that, um, at least in my personal experience, uh, it's been remarkably open and welcoming and uh, my, we have dinners with um, my, my wife's uh, cousin is a rabbi uh, uh, with, uh, with, my, with my, one of my dearest friends and my son's uh, godfather, who's a Jesuit priest at, one of the, uh, at the University of San Francisco, another Jesuit school. And uh, we have just tremendous uh, relationships and conversations and so forth, bringing these traditions together. We've had uh, dinner parties with uh, priests and rabbis and Hindus and Buddhists and atheists. And uh, these conversations are rich and friendship is, is very um, rich and embracing. And so we often say that, you know, we need, we need a lot of uh, hospitality and, and, and solidarity for the various traditions and people from those traditions to come together uh, and to, uh, you know, share similar interests and so forth sure certainly people have different paths and a good example of this is the uh, the the, uh, the famous uh, poet rummy uh, who had said uh, that uh, the different traditions are like different paths on a mountain uh, that there's different trails but if you follow them thoughtfully um, and to and and to their conclusion they, they lead you to a similar place at the top of the mountain and I think that's a good image to try to keep in mind that speaks to religion perhaps at its best, not at its worst. It's a wonderful answer. Your book appears to be designed for mental health professionals. I found it very readable. And so, you know, I, I mean, I recommend it to average people. I've, I've, I've recommended it to a couple of people already, uh, actually more than two. Tell us what prompted you to write the book. Who did you write the book for and why? Yeah, sure. Um, so as you had mentioned in my, uh, the introduction, one of the things that I do at Santa Clara University is I run a, 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 a group called the Applied Spirituality Institute. And this has been a, an institute that we've had since around 2002 that speaks to the diversity of spirituality and religion that we've been talking about thus far. Uh, there are people in that institute who are uh, clerics, like you know, priests, uh, Catholic priests or whatever. But we have uh, Methodists, Buddhists, uh, agnostics, atheists, uh, and um, uh, people from a variety of different uh, you know, spiritual religious traditions. And we do collaborative projects together. And then I have colleagues through the American Psychological Association's Division 36, which is uh, the Psychology of Religion and Spirituality Division. And um, we also connect with them, people all over the country and uh, overseas, who come from all sorts of different traditions and are interested in spirituality and religion based on uh, research and so forth. Uh, 
And so what became clear to us and what br brought us to uh, int our interest in working with this, um, this particular book, Healing with Spiritual Practices, is that often people are unaware that there's a lot of richness out there in terms of spiritual traditions and so forth around healing and healing not only mental health issues like anxiety and depression and substance abuse and so forth, but also physical Ill illnesses too, you know, like cancer and chronic pain and cardiovascular disease and so forth. And that we want to use um, quality evidence-based, you know, research um, um, uh, inspired techniques uh, to help people not to say that, uh, you know, that are spiritual religious, these are things like, you know, prayer and meditation and yoga, and so forth. Uh, and, and can we use them in a research um, evidence based manner to enhance healing. And so this book was all about that. So our institute has been together for almost 20 years. And we've done a variety of uh, projects together, book projects and other kind of uh, empirical research projects and so forth. And this seemed to be the n natural evolution of our institute to um, come up with a book on healing with spiritual practice. Uh, you know, I found the way you've weaved science and spirituality together to be, you know, compelling. But by way of uh, providing something more concrete for our, author, uh, our audience, how about an example of an evidence-based method or treatment for anxiety and depression? Yeah, this is a great question. And I also, in addition to being a, a you know, college professor, uh, I also have a small clinical practice as a licensed psychologist here in California. And this is basically what my practice is all about, is trying to help uh, folks use spiritual and religious practices in uh, whatever uh, they uh, are troubled, you know, by. So, so, so an example would be, uh, you know, I, you had mentioned, I believe, you know, things like anxiety and depression. And I have patients in my practice right now, and I have had them over the uh, 30 odd years that I've been in practice, where uh, they are interested in having quality interventions for their anxiety and depression that go beyond just, you know, let's say medication or traditional secular psychotherapy. They want more than that. So for example, I have a couple of patients in my practice now who benefit from a spiritual direction. So they meet with a cleric uh, on a regular basis in addition to meeting with me and they try to get what we call spiritual direction or spiritual help in addition to the psychotherapy. So it's sort of a one-two punch. In fact, I've got one patient who sees me in the morning and they see their spiritual director in the, the same day in the afternoon. So they get a, a bit of both. Another example is patients who are quite anxious and yet they feel solaced. They feel consoled when they can attend religious service or go to a faith sharing group or a meditation group or something like that. Um, other examples are things like very now nowadays, very popular is um, a, a technique is mindfulness based uh, stress reduction or mindfulness meditation, extremely popular. 
people people uh, seem to really get much out of it. Of course, it comes from the Buddhist tradition, but that doesn't mean it's owned by the Buddhist by in, in any way. In fact, uh, there are other traditions, including the Christian tradition, uh, who is, have used over the years what's called centering prayer that has a lot of similarities with uh, mindfulness. And I've got patients in my practice right now, for example, who are using that to deal with anxiety uh, and depressive symptoms. So mindfulness is a great uh, a technique, but it's not owned by the Buddhists in any way. Um, uh, mantram training is another good example. Mantram training is, is repeating a sacred word over and over. And I've got a colleague, one of the members or, or in, our, uh, in our team is a, a nursing professor in um, one of the VA hospitals in Southern California. And she uses this with, um, with uh, veterans who have uh, HIV uh, and also homeless vets and so forth and has done empirical research in that regard. So, they, I mean, there's a numerous examples of how a spiritual techniques, whether it's prayer, whether it's meditation, whether it's attending service, whether it's spiritual direction, whether it's mantra training and so forth, can be integrated in an evidence-based, you know, scientific way for um, the relief of anxiety, depression, substance abuse issues and so forth. One maybe last example is, you know, people are very familiar with Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, AA is a very, very popular, popular program and variations on the theme of AA, such as uh, Narcotics Anonymous, sex, Sexaholics Anonymous, Overeaters Anonymous. And if you look at the 12 steps of AA, they're remarkably uh, spiritual and religious in basis. Um, and so that's a, that's another kind of popular example of integrating that kind of spiritual element into um, treatment services. The book is packed with them. I recommend it to everybody listening. It's a wonderful book, and it's very helpful in many ways. It's time for us to get a commercial in here. So we're speaking with Professor Thomas Plant about his work and book, Healing with Spiritual Practices, Proven Techniques for Disorders from Addiction and Anxiety to Cancer and Chronic Pain. Book's available on Amazon. I'm sure you can find it in your local bookstore. You can learn more about our guest and his books by visiting his website at scu.edu forward slash T plant. Plant is spelled P-L-A-N-T-E. T for Thomas, plant. scu.edu forward slash T plant. Okay, do please stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Welcome back. If you've just joined us, we're chatting with Professor Thomas Plant about his work and book, Healing with Spiritual Practices, Proven Techniques for Disorders from Addictions and Anxiety to Cancer and Chronic Pain. You can learn more about our guest and his books by visiting his website at scu, that's Santa Clara University, scu.edu forward slash tplant. Okay, every week we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some real meaning to them. As you know by now, music psychology is not just a hobby, avocation of mine, if you will, but it's a field of research with practical relevance in many areas. So, Professor, you chose as your music today, Dan Shoots, These Alone Are Enough. Please share with us, why is this music important to you, and how does it inform us? 
about who you are? Oh, well, uh, the song is very important uh, for me, and Dan's music is very important for me. Uh, Dan uh, Schutte is a part of a team, what's called the St. Louis Jesuits, who kind of revolutionized a liturgical music in the Catholic Church in the 1970s after Vatican, in the early 70s after Vatican II. Uh, and uh, uh, Dan's music uh, is just very transformative in, in my view. Uh, he's a personal friend, a dear friend. Uh, he, is, he now lives in the San Francisco area. And it's been a great pleasure um, and privilege getting to know Dan and his music over, the, over many decades. Um, for many Catholics, particularly those who are influenced by uh, that music, uh, they, they speak to it as the soundtrack of their life. Uh, and these alone are enough. Uh, this, the song that was played is the very famous prayer of St. Ignatius, the founder of the Jesuits, called the Suspice. Uh, and it's, it's the prayer that's always given at, um, for example, at funerals and things like that, uh, which is uh, I also uh, read and um, had sung at my mother's funeral uh, uh, two years ago. And so it's a meaningful musician, it's a meaningful music, and it's a meaningful prayer. And the purpose of the song is basically to say, you know, uh, at the end of the day, everything that we get, we, we believe is a gift. You know, life is a gift. It's a, uh, we would say in my tradition, it's a gift from God. And that at the end of the day, we, we give it all back. That when we leave this world, uh, we hand it all back, um, back to God uh, to use as as He will. It's beautifully done for certain. All right. Well, let's be let's play devil's advocate a bit for a minute. I've interviewed a number of prominent atheists and agnostics. You mentioned earlier that you have, um, you know, your atheists and your agnostics that attend. So. To the person, they attack religion first on the basis of claims that are either tautological or unscientific. So from the Earth Age of 7,000 years to the notion of omnipotence, their attacks, which appeal especially to the younger generation, and when I say that, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of Docking's work, you know, he seems to be one of their heroes, uh, decimates traditional religious views with arguments such as, if God is all-powerful, can he build a rock so large he can't lift it? Or if God is all-powerful, why did he create Adam with a deficient will? What do you say to those who attack religion this way? Great question, Eldon, and it's a very common one. You hear this an awful lot. And you know, I think I think very either religious people and very atheist people, you know, I kind of both uh, can I think make the same error, which is um, a certain degree of kind of you know arrogance in believing that they have answers when answers are often hard to come by. And so I think when it comes to the uh, these questions, we have to approach with humility. Uh, that whether you're a religious person or a non-religious person, that to expect us to have answers for so many questions is really um, uh, quite difficult and if not um, arrogant. 
And so we approach with humility. And it reminds me of a, a funny line from one of, one of those old Woody Allen movies where someone was asking him, you know, how could it be that God allowed Nazis and Nazi Germany to unfold and, and to, you know, all those um, Jews and others getting killed? And, and uh, the response was um, by uh, Woody Allen in the role that he played was, how do I know why there were Nazis? I don't even know how the can opener works. <laughs> and I, I think that speaks to the humility that we have to approach. So I think people, uh, whether they're religious or not, um, I think may wish to ask themselves, can they approach some of these questions with sincere you know, thoughtfulness and humility? And I would say that we treat people I know you have said in your show today and you know elsewhere you're interested in in the humane treatment of animals and things like that which is you know terrific and i think part of um my uh thinking on this is that we you know we treat everyone humans as well as animals uh, with respect with compassion with reverence and a certain degree of humility and I think this is really important that we try to avoid um, arrogance. You mentioned Richard Dawkins and, and some of the other new atheists like, uh, like Richard Dawkins, or Chris, uh, Christopher Hitchens, uh, Sam Harris, and so forth. And I've certainly you know, read their work. But I feel like some, that work comes with a certain degree of, um, to be honest, some, some degree of arrogance and not enough humility. And uh, sometimes they uh, take the worst case scenarios of religion and run with that. You know, some of the, the wacky things that people sometimes do in the name of religion as, as if that represents all religion. And I think a good analogy that everybody could understand would be, let's say a car. Is a car a good thing or a bad thing? Well, in a lot of ways, we'd probably say a car is a really good thing because a car gets you where you want to go. So that's a really good thing. Uh, but in some respects, it's a really bad thing because it can you know, a gas-powered car can pollute the environment, and in the hands of a drunk driver a, a, or a terrorist, a car could be a, a weapon and could kill people. So it is a good thing or bad thing. It's, it's both. Um, and if you are a victim of a drunk driver, uh, you might say, well, a car is a terrible thing. Or if you live in a highly polluted uh, area uh, where cars are, are creating such pollution that it's hard to breathe, then you might say cars are a bad thing. But uh, if you need to be rushed to the hospital in an ambulance, you might say, well, a car is a good thing. And I think the same can be true, said uh, for religion. You know, I like your answer, particularly the contrast, humility to versus arrogance. But I'm going to flip the coin over and, and ask it to you a little differently. Do you, how much arrogance do you think is involved in deciding that we're going to hang omnibenevolent, omniscient, uh, omnipotent, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, um, uh, as labels on the creator of all that is? Yeah, and I, you know, I guess I, I, I would say um, you know, a, well, a very well-known um, um, world religion scholars, a fellow named Houston Smith, who you may have heard of. Uh, uh, he was quite well known. Unfortunately, he passed yeah. away a few years ago. He was uh, kind of deep in his 90s. And 
and and he he, he was uh, um, featured in Bill Moyer's special on world religions. And mm -hmm. I've gotten to know U uh, Houston over the years. There was a uh, Houston Smith um, Institute here in Northern California, and we used to have what was what's called a brunch with Houston on the second Saturday of the of the month uh, uh, during his you know final years. And um, I th I think he's a very good. Uh, a scholar and thoughtful and a, and a kind and gracious person and writes beautifully about this. And I think he, um, uh, uh, some of the, his um, approach would be that, you know, we're all sort of like on this journey trying to understand the world, meaning and purpose in life, you know, answering, trying to answer questions, what happens when we die, what, why do bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people, and we're trying to understand the world. And the religious traditions over the years have tried to give us some um, structures to answer those very important questions. Um, but we have to kind of respect each other's path and journey, uh, embrace uh, that we're all trying to answer similar kinds of questions, and uh, um, firm answers are often very hard to come by. So um, these notions of an omnipotent God and this and that and 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 a, and, and, you know, a lot of that, it comes out of um, struggling with these foundational basic human questions for millennia. Uh, and I think another good, a good author who's written quite well about some of these things is, a, is a, another popular author named Karen Armstrong, who's written quite a bit about this. And she talks about in her uh, book, um, the great transformation about the axial age or the may how the major religious traditions of the world emerged and she kind of concludes that you know at the end of the day um compassion is uh, the name of the game and uh, all of the traditions have had their um failings and their atrocities and so forth uh no one is spared from moments of uh, arrogance and atrocities and in-group versus out-group fighting and so forth but at the end of the day, uh, compassion is really where the action is. And I, I think I would um, agree with that. I just kind of think, I guess for me, and that's a great answer, that we would circumvent a whole lot of problems if we just, you know, more or less thought of it maybe like Plotinus. We, you know, God's the ineffable unknown. Uh, <clears throat> so much for that. Some research professors suggest that people are actually hardwired to believe in a higher power. Michael Shermer puts us down to what he calls our believing brains. That is, evolution facilitated this since it makes sense that we become more and more aware. Uh, we need aware of ourselves, aware in the sense of conscious. Well, then we need hope to continue in life, and religious beliefs facilitate that. So when we lose a loved one, well, they had to go to some other place. What are your thoughts on the brain being hardwired for religious experience and this whole question of evolution, Professor? You know, it's a great question, and there's a good amount of research on this topic, this notion of is there like a God gene, which I believe was called a, a yeah. BMAT, I think it's called, the mm -hmm. God gene. Is there, uh, is there somehow we're wired to have uh, religious uh, interests and engagement and so forth. And I would say that, you know, we also have to put this in context and what we would call a biopsychosocial or a biopsychosocial spiritual 
model or perspective. There's, uh, we do believe, and I'm no neuroscientist or brain scientist, but we do believe that there is research that suggests that there is sort of a gener genetic or some predisposition towards religiosity um, and, and spirituality and so forth. Uh, and we believe that there's some evidence for that, but it's not so simple because it's interacting with psychological and social uh, uh, issues as well. How we're raised, how, uh, what kind of uh, life do we have and how we try to find meaning and purpose in the world and understand our world. Uh, and certainly science has helped us to have a better appreciation for how the world works and so forth uh, uh, in, in current times compared to thousands of years ago. Um, and, and so because of that, because of our relig uh, the primary religious traditions were developed many, many years ago, they're also burdened by the understanding of the time. So a really good example of this speaks to why would the Catholics be sort of uh, discombobulated over things like uh, uh, masturbation and uh, other kind of sexual behavior, uh, abortion, this and that. And there's a variety of reasons for that, but in, in a simple answer, is we have to understand that that you know during the Middle Ages, uh, the understanding of biology at the time was that the fully formed human being was in the semen. Uh, so a real complete human being was in the semen that got planted into a female. And so uh, if you think of that in those terms, you know, if that's your understanding of biology, then 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 masturbation is murder. You've just killed somebody. Now that now we know. In the you know in the 21st century that of course the fully formed human being is not in the semen but we have to realize that these religious scriptures and texts that go back thousands of years uh, uh, were, were written during a particular time and a particular way of understanding the world and so we have to kind of under realize that um, in order to have a better appreciation for how do we understand these texts in the 21st century I think there's altogether too little of that shared uh, in in religious circles, or or that is at least you know when you visit church or you read the Bible, you read the Book of Leviticus as a case in point. A lot of people just get turned off right there, unclean woman, and so on and so forth. Um, but this whole idea of accepting what's written in in the bible particularly the old testament i guess is a record of yahweh's intercourse with the jewish people more as a a history uh subject to translation and context uh that's something that i just don't think um we hear enough of which you know please opine on that comment yeah no that i think that's true and that's why i'm so grateful to be honest to be in a uh a, a jesuit university uh, like Santa Clara, because uh, we can talk about this stuff all the time. <laughs> you know, uh, one of the nice things about, uh, you know, uh, I think uh, these kind of schools, uh, not just Santa Clara, but other 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 kind of um, uh, not only Jesuit schools, but other kinds of uh, schools that are maybe cut from the cloth, same cloth, is that this is very much part of uh, what we talk about. Uh, and uh, and so that uh, we have to um, uh, and find resources if we're interested in this stuff, regardless of one's tradition or no tradition, to learn more about about uh, uh, what what do we really know about these traditions and scripture and things like that. And there's so many fun stories, uh, wonderful writers, um, 
you know, for a good example is uh, Bart Ehrman, who's uh, uh, at the University of North Carolina, who writes a, a variety of popular, you know, and in, in, engaging books, even though as an academic, he writes for a general audience, too. Uh, one of them is called Misquoting Jesus. And it's a terrific book because it shows you how errors uh, can can take you down the wrong path. So, for example, if you change one letter of one word of the of the original Greek, uh, that you find that John the Baptist wasn't eating locusts and wild honey in the in the desert. He was eating pancakes and wild honey in the desert. Well, pancakes make a whole lot more sense than locusts. Or if you the Greek uh, the ancient Greek word. Uh, that's used to refer to um, uh, Jesus's mother Mary could be interpreted as virgin, but it could also equally be interpreted as young mother. Well, you know that matters. Uh, do, you, right. do you interpret that as virgin, or do you ter- interpret it as young young mother? Um, and and that word apparently can be interpreted either way. So there's a lot of that um, um, oh, uh, that, that we could unpack, and that. Um, uh, another good example is the fourth gospel in the New Testament, the Gospel of John. It's a high Christology gospel. Uh, it's very kind of, uh, you know, uh, Jesus is very special, you know, and, and much more so than some of the earlier written gospels. And when they debated uh, and decided what would be canonical, you know, what part of the text would be official and what would not, uh, there was voting and the Gospel of John uh, got in when the Gospel of Thomas got did not. And if you read the Gospel of Thomas, it's like Jesus is Buddha. You know, Jesus comes across as very much a Buddha, but it's a low, very low Christology. And it matters. Uh, so we'd have a greatly, uh, a vastly different kind of Christianity if you substitute the Gospel of John for the Gospel of Thomas. Uh, there's all sorts of things like that. And so I'd encourage your listeners who are interested in this stuff. There's plenty out there. Uh, you don't have to be at a Jesuit school to, to access this. There's wonderful writers. Karen Armstrong, there's Houston Smith, there's Bart Ehrman, there's Jill Levine. I mean, uh, there's Elaine Pagel. I mean, there's so many wonderful scholars who write for a general audience uh, who could really learn and expand their mind. And I think if you do, you develop more humility, more compassion uh, than not. Let's get back to your book. I love your answers. The Rosetta Stone, I think, was uh, just, um, I want to say hugely significant, but I was looking for a better word uh, in understanding these things. For our audience, how can people not engaged in religious or spiritual practices benefit from these practices, spiritual practices, those in your book, Professor? Yeah, I, and I think a lot of people are doing this already. I mean, there's an awful lot of people who would describe themselves as either atheist, agnostic, or what we call the nuns. Uh, N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S. Um, so the nuns are people that have no real affiliation. And for the most part, they tend to like some of the tools that are, uh, that are offered by spirituality, but without sort of the religious identification. Probably the best example of this is mindfulness. You know, mindfulness uh, is has been sanitized, if you will, secularized, so that people really don't see the Buddhism in, in it. Another example is yoga. Yoga, of course, comes from the Hindu tradition. It's very much part of that tradition. Uh, and yet there are so many people who love and enjoy yoga who are not Hindus at all and have no interest in Hinduism. Another issue, another uh, one is music. You you had played my one of my favorite uh, Dan Schuette songs during the break, and uh, people are very moved by music. 
of so much of the work that, of Bach and Mozart and so forth was liturgical music, but you don't have to uh, uh, be uh, in a church environment to appreciate that. Uh, 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 there's uh, so, so for example, the Ave Maria, beautiful, beautiful song uh, that, uh, that a lot of people like. Uh, uh, and uh, they, they don't care that it's that it's the Hail Mary prayer set to music. It's just a beautiful song. And so um, that music, mindfulness, yoga, and of course, community support. Uh, one of the nice things that religious traditions tend to offer is a way to engage in community. And I'm sorry to cut you off, Professor. Oh, of we we are right coming on. up on a hard time limit. Uh, I want to thank you, sir, for uh, your willingness to share with us today for the book that you've written. It's a great book. I recommend it to everybody. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends, let's have them join us as well. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, Remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.